Let's begin with a decision which has had major implications for how we deal with the climate crisis. Ten years ago, Irish dairy farmers were encouraged to fix their eyes on the prize of an unrestricted market. Once milk quotas were abolished, the very clear objective on this farm was that every blade of grass would be turned into milk. A bureaucratic constraint on milk supply was lifted and the industry was unbound. Oh, it's a real opportunity. It's a positive day, very positive day in, in our industry, really. You know, there's, there's pent-up ambition in the industry. Officially, it was win-win. The government would hear no talk of any downside. And if anybody was to, you know, approach the Taoiseach and say, we're going to employ 10,000 people in rural parishes across Ireland, they'd be on the front page of every newspaper for a month. It was, however, very clear even then that dairy expansion and emissions reductions were going to be uneasy bedfellows. But that concern was pushed down the road. What we really have to do here is maximise production where it can be best be done, and that without doubt is Ireland. But Take what about the undertakings? 20% reduction uh, in carbon emissions by 2020, and we're only 2% of the way there. Our big problem here is that agriculture is a key part of our economy. We're, huge, we're hugely dependent upon it. There was massive growth. Many new jobs were created. So was a lot of shareholder wealth. There was also massive investment. I mean, there's been about 550 million spent in rural Ireland in, you know, by Lakeland, Dairygold, Carberry, Kerry. And farmers were encouraged to match that investment in their own futures. Work has shown that those who are in debt, who are higher levels of debt, tend to be more efficient because they've invested in their business. So we need to invest in business. We will need to increase the level of debt. It's just doing it in a sustainable way. A lot of good was done throughout rural Ireland thanks to this expansion. But more recently, attention shifted to the inconvenient truth that had been ignored all along. The agriculture sector is the single biggest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. It accounts for 35% of emissions. The expansion of the dairy herd is a factor and is something which will need to be addressed in the coming years. So now we're stuck between a tough choice and a hard place. Do we double down and keep on expanding, even though the science says this is unsustainable? We have had a lot of expansion in the dairy industry since mm -hmm. quotas were removed. I think that has been fantastic and we've seen a lot of people being able to get into the industry at the moment. There's still, there's still a lot of appetite out there for people to get into it or for people to expand. Or do we say, sorry lads, that investment advice was wrong and you are going to have to take a big hit for Team Ireland. Still being ignored by the government, the very same as we were being ignored in 1966. Between the government and the Green Party and the environmental crowd, are trying to stop us from making a living. I'm Philip Boucher Hayes and this is Hot Mess, looking at the size of the gap between our climate aspirations and climate actions, the gap between what we'll say we'll do and what we'll actually get done. Episode 3, The Last Drop, a conversation with a dairy farmer. Environmentalists and agriculturalists have drawn their red lines, lines which have painted everyone into their respective corners, and the conversation is now ill-tempered. Where is the meeting ground, and how do we get there? Perhaps for a start, by walking a mile or two in another man's shoes. I was just going to say, uh, it's a, 
not often that you see the theme of the house picked up in the milking parlour. <laughs> oh, yeah. So this is the shed, right? Because you're master of all you survey from up here, aren't you? Well, it's Look. designed so that when I come home of a night in clean shoes, I don't have to go changing into boots. I can see everything. If, and if we want to, you know. The entrance to Tim O'Leary's milking parlour leaves you high above the feed shed and milking platform. It gives you a commanding view of the investments that he has made to take advantage of the lifting of dairy quota in 2015. It started out as 10 units when we built it. And once quarters came off, we increased it to 15. The space was in it to do it. So it was just a case of adding the stuff. Um, then we had to put in a new milk tank because the tank we had wasn't big enough to contain all the milk we were now going to produce. And then we had to put in a feeding system as well, because uh, it was easy enough to feed 50 or 60 cows in the head feed over there, but when it went up to 150 cows, that was too much labour. How much of all of this is the, uh, the fruit of the sweat of your own labour, and how much of it is grant-aided? So the original shed was all built out of our own funds, right? We didn't get any grant-aid for that. And um, the slurry storage and silage pits, the whole lot. And then we got some grant aid for the milk tank, for the feeding system and the expansion of the milking parlour. But it means that, what, you're carrying 80, 90%? Oh, if you added it all up, probably 90%, yeah. But you're never debt-free, is no, my no. point. No, no, you're not, no. You're um, not. But um, it's a bearable, don't get me wrong now, it's a bearable cost, like it's an investment cost. No, I do get it, but... Uh, with absolutely no insult intended to you, at a point in your life when most other fellows would be looking at coming to the end of mortgages, your business model is and can only ever be one where you're constantly carrying debt. Yes, but it's because I've got a son farming with me that we're doing that now. Multi-generational debt. Multi-generational debt, then, yeah. So his name is going on the debt now as long as, as well as mine, you know. Mm. And as the farm transfers out, mine will disappear off the debt and he'll carry it. Tim more than doubled the size of his herd to take advantage of the lifting of the cap on production. But it wasn't as simple as buying more cows. Every aspect of the farm's operations had to be overhauled and invested in, particularly the stuff that most would take for granted. We need to have a very large water supply to dairy cows. Because a dairy cow, I have to go imperial out for a minute, but a dairy cow on a hot summer's day can drink 25 or 30 gallons of water. So we had a system that was good enough for 50 or 60 cows. When we went up over the 100 cows, it wasn't big enough, so we just had to bite the bullet and put in a new system. Is that costly? Of course it was, yeah. These these cost about 500 euros a piece, and there's about 20 of them in the farm, so... You can do the sum and you put the water, you put the you put the pipeline in after that, and you put the well in, and you run it. They're they're the running costs like that you have to do now. And that now could all be dead money if you're forced to contract and head back down towards fifty or sixty cattle. Oh yeah, 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 and not enough time to recoup the costs. You don't get this back in two years. Like this is longer term investment at what point did you feel like you were being officially encouraged to expand your business to get more intensive to get more out of this land osher food harvest 2020 that plan that was the cheerleaders song for for agriculture to for daring to get out and get going you know and um so that'd be from what 2010 2011 on on, yeah once once it was official that milk quarters were being abolished um it was quite obvious that something was going to happen. The co-ops built the factories to process the milk. 
Tagus gave us a template to produce the cows and to produce the grass and to produce the milk on farm and Board Bia and the Irish Dairy Board got on board and sold the stuff and we shouldn't underestimate just how successful all that was at the time to do. Mm. You know? At the same time though, the climate science was saying back in 2010 was pretty clear, I mean almost as clear as it is now, that kind of expansion wasn't going to be sustainable. Yeah, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Well, in fairness, was it hindsight? I think we actually knew at that stage. We just didn't apply the foresight. I think there's been a change. There's, I know there's been a change because I read quite a bit on this stuff all the time. Um, I know there's been a change in the, in the narrative now about expansion. The narrative at that time would have been more about water quality, would have been more about nitrates, would have been more about biodiversity loss almost. There certainly was very little talk, if any, about methane and emissions like those. We didn't hear about methane, no. The conversation was happening, the science was there. Do you think, or are you in any way annoyed now that Tagashk, that the Climate Advisory Council, that wiser council, wiser heads didn't prevail and say, hang on a second, should we be getting people like Tim O'Leary to put as much money into expanding his herd as, he, as we are now officially directing him to do? Wasn't it an opportunity to grow an industry? A native industry that had just gone through the global financial crisis and had continued to employ in rural Ireland, had continued to export out of Ireland and bring in cash into Ireland when the rest of the economy was on its knees and downturned. What's the point in seizing an opportunity if you know that the rug is going to be pulled out from underneath you 10 years down the line? Yeah, but nobody knew the rug. or no, Certainly no one was saying the rug was going to be pulled on, out from under us 10 years ago. And it's, again, hindsight is wonderful. But we need to be back. If you were back in 2010, right, when the proverbial had hit the fan and jobs were being hemorrhaged hemorrhaged now is the only word for it and you had these factories that were trundling along still making butter and still making cheese and still exporting it and still selling it and the opportunity came that we could increase that and we could put good jobs into local towns because remember this expansion just hasn't kept Tim O'Leary and Colm O'Leary in business this expansion has added a whole load of jobs in Mallow this expansion has added a whole load of jobs in McCroom there are seven, there's a cheese factory built below in, near Middleton in Mogili where there are 70 new jobs created, every one of them a graduate. So you so, don't blame anybody? You don't think that we got the official advice wrong or the official direction of policy wrong at any point in the last 10 years? From where I'm sitting and from what I'm reading and seeing, it was the best advice available at the time in the context. The science says we need to reduce emissions by 50% by the end of this decade. The government's target for agriculture sees no such urgency, though. Supposing for a minute we go with the science and not the politics. I asked him, did he see any way of halving his emissions and staying in business? Couldn't Uh, do it. Would that put you out of business? There's certainly scope to do some. But it won't achieve the 30% or the, or the 50% or the, or, the, or the 100% because animals are still going to emit methane. Um, reducing the numbers leaves us in a situation where we are not going to be viable. It's not going to be uh, profitable. 
Because what, fi- what, what, what is the viability point, do you reckon? I mean, what's the number that ends up putting you out What's of the price of milk? I, without being smart now, what's yeah, the price okay, of milk? Fair enough, fair what's enough, the price of yeah. a litre of milk? You know, like if the, if the price of milk was higher, then we could do with less. If I was prepared to pay 10 cents more for my two litre bottle... There's no security in milk price. The support probably has to come outside of milk price because people won't pay enough. People don't. People are well conditioned now to cheap food and a lot of it. So they're not going to change their habits like that, you know. I'd be surprised to see it happen. So either consumers stump up more at the checkout or taxpayers provide greater subsidy support. In short, we will only get the emissions reduction that we pay for. But this corner of the climate action debate has become mired up to its hocks in dispute, disagreement and denial of the science. Coming up after the break, how do we talk our way out of that? Looking at a 50% emissions reduction by 2030, economic output for agriculture would dramatically fall by 46% or 8.9 billion euro. If you were a farmer listening to what emissions reductions in line with the science meant for your livelihood, it would be very hard not to be alarmed. And under this scenario, the national herd would be almost halved, reducing by 47% for beef and 45% for the dairy herd. The science isn't open to negotiation or compromise. Playing our part in staying below two degrees of warming means halving emissions in eight years. And the environmentalists and scientists have been uncompromising in holding our feet to the flames on this. And there's no way that agriculture can opt out of this because it's legally binding that we would meet this target by 2030. But cutting emissions in half on a farm could, according to one study, possibly mean a loss of income to dairy farmers of up to €46,000 a year. Farm leaders haven't minced their words in response. And whether it's driven by Fianna Fáil or driven by Fianna Gael, I don't know. But I tell you one thing for sure. The Greens have their fingers all over this plan. All over it. Because everything about it is about putting farmers out of business. This is a hot mess. Environmentalists in one corner, farmers in the other. And the longer that we disagree before starting what has to be done, the more that will have to be done. It took the Irish political system 10 years to recognise that we needed carbon budgets. We don't have another 10 years to debate how they should be shared out. So if we are to move from aspiration to action, the entrenched conversation needs to change now. Oh, Green Desert is the most annoying one of all. Tim O'Leary is particularly scathing of environmentalists who are critical of what he is doing. Philip, look around you. Where's the Green Desert? Like, it's full of trees and hedgerows and houses and buildings and those trees down there are now going to change colour in the next month. They're going to be fantastic. And then in the spring you're going to get these lovely soft green colours for a start and then they'll change into the, into the year. That's the, the single most annoying one, to be honest. Right. After that, of course, the next one is um, the one about abusing our animals. That gets me every time. I can take on the science, no trouble at all. I can understand that and, and want to work with it. But the extremist views really annoy me. Before he agreed to an interview, in the interest of full transparency, Tim very politely told me that he had seen me on television and thought that I was anti-farmer. But he agreed that what was needed was more reasonable dialogue. So I asked him if he'd continue our conversation, but with an ecologist, not me. 
He was skeptical about what it would achieve, but fair play to him, he was game. Good evening, James. How are you? How how are things, Tim? How are you getting on? Not not too bad now. I follow follow you on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen you on Twitter as well. That's all we see people these days is on social media, isn't it? It's not the best place to be following anybody, is it? Dr. James Moran is an ecology and biology lecturer in GMIT. He specialises on environment and agriculture programmes. But for the purposes of this programme, James's superpower is that he grew up on a dairy farm in Tourmakidi, County Mayo. I was your son maybe 15 years before that, you know, but, is on a, on, but on a much smaller dairy farm in the, in the west of Ireland, you know. All I wanted to do was milk cows and farm as well, you know. I set up a three-way Zoom with James in Galway, Tim in Cork and me in Wicklow. Instantly, they both agreed that the debate between farmers and campaigners on social media was only souring the well. Yeah, oh, I, I, don't, I don't like having conversations on it at all. It's not good, like, you know, you yeah. can end up down an awful rabbit hole in the space of a one tweet, you know. That's for sure. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm used to being, I suppose, Tim as well, has been out, out on farms from working as an advisor before. And often when you're having these difficult conversations, you know, you need to have them sort of face to face and understand where the other person is coming from and particularly read body language. So, you know, you're not offending somebody. You can offend somebody inadvertently on social media very quickly, like, you know. It seems to give people an anonymity that they're prepared to exploit and say things on social media that they would never say to your face and never dream of saying to your face, which kind of defeats the whole purpose, I think, of of that. Whether it was a well-learned tactic from his years spent as a Chagask advisor before becoming an academic or a sincere response to what he had heard, James moved straight onto the ground that they both had in common. I totally understand uh, the situation and... I'd say if we were had the natural advantages that he had down in Cork with that size of an operation in 2000, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I'd be I'd be down there farming out from milking cows or coming in from milking cows at the moment, you know. So that's but uh, I suppose what what is just to put it in perspective. Put this now, in I, my mind. I own I own eighty five acres. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. It's not a giant. It's not a giant farm. We we own eighty five acres. The rest of it's leased. Yeah, so you have a, you have a lot lot leased as well. But I even yeah. I even imagine myself if we had that amount at the at the time, you know, you would have maybe the 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 wherewithal to maybe get some borrowings from a bank, which was we were really the banks wouldn't look at us in it, for example, That's, you know. Yeah, that was the problem. Yeah, without a doubt. That would... Tim told James about all of the efficiencies that he had adopted on the farm in recent years, and even in spite of that, what reducing emissions by half in the next eight years would do to his business. But a reduction of the level you're talking about there, Philip, of 51% is is out of the question, really, without serious financial implications or serious cost to the state to to replace the lost income that we'd incur for doing something like that. You know, it really would be very expensive for the state to say, OK, lads, we'll, 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 mat, we'll, we'll sort you out here. You know, I, I don't think it, it, sustain, it certainly wouldn't be sustainable long term to do that. I didn't know where James was going to take this conversation, but it became apparent before too long that what he was doing was breaking down the enormous problem into a series of much smaller and potentially more solvable problems to see how far that would get us. I suppose given that, that situation that you're in, one of the things you mentioned uh, as well there, Philip, was uh, you know this blunt application of a 51% reduction, you know, so there's if that should not be the way this is going to be applied, and this is one of the things I 
very much worry about at the moment. The longer we spend fighting over what the targets are going to be, the 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 more we delay putting in place the actions that are going to deliver the actual uh, greenhouse gas reductions that are needed uh, across society. Like you know, James broke down the big problem of fifty percent emissions reductions in eight years to a farm by farm bite-sized approach. The technology is just around the corner for providing a bespoke set of targets for each farm rather than a crude rule of thumb for the whole country. We have to have the the overall national figures, you know, and these percentages and uh, overall tons of million tons that we have to stick within in terms of our international commitments because we are working within a global climate after all, you know. But we have to move uh, away then as a nation very quickly to translating that into catchment and, and, and farm level. And when you start looking at that level, we have so much diversity in the capacities of our land for carbon storage, carbon sequestration, its its innate ability to produce grass or or fibre or, or, or timber, you know. Uh, so we have to start breaking it down on a farm by farm basis. And I think these days, we have so much data from satellite information, mapping of land, monitoring, that we have the data to break it down to that level. It actually makes it real for the individual farmer within the context of the, the catchment they're working in. But James's smartest party trick was to point out that climate change was going to mean that Tim would probably have to reduce the size of his herd anyway in order to be able to feed all of his animals. I suppose you suppose you've identified this yourself that you you might be a bit high on the stocking rate if you but if you went down to about 120 would that give you headroom and some resilience to this changes between years say if we got yes. drought years three in every five for the next five years or would that Without a doubt, it would. Yes, you'd 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 make more bale silage in in good growing conditions, which you would then have on hand for the drought period. You know, you would. Yes, it would. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt about. There's no doubt about that. After about an hour of talking, we arrived at a point where Tim was almost about to acknowledge that cutting ten percent in the size of his herd was probably prudent, when he considered how much drought in the future would impact his ability to grow grass. If we tentatively were looking at overall, now I'm not saying on individual farms, but an overall about a 5% reduction in animal numbers, you know, we would maybe have a have some sort of a hope of meeting that. But what Tim described to me there is a 10% reduction. Is that, is that, I yeah. wonder, is that right, is it? You see, you'd hate to give a hostage to fortune now, James, you know. <laughs> you, you'd, like, but, you'd like to be able to keep the... You, you see, you were onto something where where you had the idea of uh, different horses for different courses or different farms for different yeah, sources, yeah, yeah. right? And um, the trouble with talking about that uh, a, a livestock number reduction is acceptable is that people will take that as the easy option. But what I, w- I wouldn't be saying here now, I wouldn't be saying about setting a limit, uh, setting a target of 5% reduction in cat numbers. I'd say we'd set the li- the, 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 the actual million tons of carbon we want to reduce from farming you know then we work with individual farmers you know some like you might based on your economic assessment of it how you're growing try to build in some resilience against drought you wouldn't be required to reduce five percent but it might turn out following the best advice you might reduce to ten percent there's still i would think certain farmers in the country that are farming below capacity and might actually increase slightly It was only an hour of a conversation and it didn't solve the climate crisis, but 
it did make a start. For a start, Philip, it's it's, it's a pleasure to partake in a conversation where there is a proper engagement and 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 a uh, a direction of finding a solution to the issues we're facing. So that's a great start. Um, I don't think we have, we have solutions, Scott, but I think we have... Oh, no, we, we haven't, have no, and we wouldn't in one conversation, but I imagine if there was people like us sitting down and working together on this basis over the next 15 months to 24 months, you know, so it is, and we, we came together as a society like this. Now, I'm, this is, I know people talk, when I start talking like this, and I know I'm dreaming a bit myself, like, you know, but I do think if we came together like this, you know, there's so much we could achieve on this, particularly in the the natural advantages we have on, on, on the island of Ireland, you know. An ecologist and an agriculturalist getting down into the weeds of what needs to be done and not making the perfect the enemy of the good. Yeah, and great to talk to you, Tim. It's been a very interesting conversation, and I know I, one thing I do when I'm talking like this: often my perspectives will change, and this can change, and maybe tomorrow I might have different ideas, you know. But we're all about finding solutions to these problems, you know, and I think we can, you know. Yeah, well, we we need to like we need to because I have a grandchild running around out there, and I want him to be running around out, yeah. outside the door here. I want him running around in a in a in a comfortable world, you know. It's 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 it's, yeah, it's exactly. a duty for us all to do that. We spent 10 years trying to muster up the political support to make a climate bill into law. We could easily spend another 10 years with farmers pointing fingers at airline passengers, motorists resisting cycle lanes and everyone giving data centres the side eye. Or we could have the kind of conversations that get us out of our respective corners and moving in the right direction. The alternative is a mess and getting hotter and hotter.